Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Live at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., you're listening to The Tidbit, brought to you by Curate. I'm your host and the CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. Do you run a small business or have dreams to start one? Here at The Tidbit, we've got your back. Each week, we talk through tidbits of knowledge around starting or running a small business with a food and beverage lens. A topic that keeps surfacing these days is around self-care and entrepreneurship, And I'm particularly interested in this discussion as it relates to the beliefs that we tell ourselves, how the media exacerbates those beliefs, and how cultural norms keep us in race, gender, gender and or socioeconomic boxes. It's really easy to feel like you're not keeping up with the Joneses enough, or maybe more relevant today, keeping up with the Kardashians enough. Uh, through our digital lives. Why aren't you living your best life when everyone around you seems to be? Or are you sharing the world, sharing with the world the perception of your best life, professional or personal, but in fact, you're crippled with stress? So when I came across the, the piece in the Atlantic titled The Rise of Anxiety Baking, it immediately struck a chord. According to the American Psychiatric Association's annual poll, 40% of Americans report feeling more anxious in 2018 than they did in 2017, which saw a 36% increase over 2016. That's pretty astonishing. And the article goes on to read, Last winter, a recipe for salted chocolate chunk shortbread cookies spread through my social circle like a carbohydrate epidemic. One of my friends kept seeing the cookies pop up on Instagram and relenting to digital peer pressure eventually made them. She brought half of the batch to a dinner party and then it was off to the races. For months, it felt as if every time I showed up to a party, someone else was pulling out a Tupperware container out of a tote bag full of what was eventually known amongst us all just as the cookies. (laughs) And the particular look of the cookies chunky and squat with a right angled edge finished with flaky sea salt made them distinctive in a way that few recipes are which in turn made the recipe from chef allison roman's dining in cookbook an easy shorthand as each subsequent friend made and presented their cookies they'd note how the process went it was as if everyone i knew had taken up baking And the author then goes on to talk about why baking has become almost this self-care practice amongst female-identifying millennials. And I really want to have a discussion about this because I, on the other hand, feel like this viral behavior is a fine line away from regurgitating cultural norms of how, how, look, look how good I am at taking care of a home. And I just want to have a frank discussion about when we look at entrepreneurship and the development of small business, we must be cognizant of all of these societal factors at play. What creates a business, a brand, a lifestyle that people culturally are buying into? This uh, millennial self-care look 
may be it right now, but I really want us to be aware of and discuss what these messages and imagery, what these decisions might, might be propagating. So to discuss this intersection, we are joined in studio today by Sarah Malfris, the pastry chef at Rye Street Tavern by Andrew Carmelini in Baltimore, Maryland. Born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina, she received a bachelor's degree in gender and women's studies from Warren Wilson College before deciding to pursue a career in hospitality. She's an avid collector of crystals, loves old cookbooks, supporting fellow pastry chefs, and smashing the patriarchy one slice of cake at a time. Boom! We will be right back with Sarah. You're listening to The Tidbit. I'm your host, Kim Bryden, and we're here with Sarah Malfris, pastry chef at Rye Street Tavern in Baltimore, Maryland, and 2014 recipient of the Star Chef's Rising Star Pastry Chef Award. Hello, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We are so jazzed to be here with you having this discussion. As I just mentioned, the rise of anxiety baking really struck a chord with me. And to pull a quote from the piece, it reads, Baking is mindful. Mindfulness means paying attention to yourself in the moment and not being in the past or the future, but really being there. Um, And this is a quote by Philip Muskin, a Columbia University psychiatry professor. So I'd love to start a discussion asking you, what does this mean to you? Well, I mean, I think for at-home baking, being mindful and being present and really having that space to bake and think and work through whatever it is you're going through is really crucial. But on a professional aspect, when I'm baking, I'm constantly thinking about the future, about deadlines, about when I have to need, when I need like this cake done for this day or like a new dessert that's going on the menu. So it's you really have to take a couple steps back and there are times when you're like this is my career but it's also what i love doing and mm. you kind of have to like take take steps to really remain in the moment mm. because it's forcing you as a profession to think future think exactly so what this author might be thinking about as baking as a mindfulness practice is only in a context of a particular home baker in this regard. I mean, in in my opinion, yes. I mean, baking, though it is like the love of my life, it's also my career. It's, you know, my bread and butter. It's, It's my life. Right. And what I find is interesting between, I think we've seen a similar shift of photographers even, those who are professional photographers and just maybe iPhone photographers. We're seeing this... Um, how do I want to say this? A spectrum of what type of skill set is out there. And I think social media has really changed our discourse about these skills. Someone who is maybe a home baker versus professional. What, how do you feel about this? I mean, I would, I would definitely agree. I think the rise of social media and especially like food and bev and baking, especially on social media, it I love it because it makes it more accessible to anyone who wants to try um, 
to try it out mm-hmm. and see if it works for them or if it's something that they enjoy. And that aspect, I, I really appreciate. And um, I love seeing what other people are doing, professionals and non-professionals. Um, but the two that I constantly have to tell myself is they are very different. So different. And just to speak on the flip side of that, in my opinion, Instagram has really, again, propagated baking as this societal marker. This is just my feelings. Instead of having, say, your 1950s neighborhood block party where people gossiped over Susan, I'm just picking a random name, Susan's ability to maintain the house, her look, and bake perfectly, we're now kind of recreating that same vibe, but online. Like, how does she have it all? And it just really, I don't know. I mean, I, and I do mean she and individuals who identify with the she, her, hers pronoun because that is the gendered stereotype that I think is still very much a part of our collective cultural consciousness. And so considering that you studied gender and women's studies, how do you try to buck the stereotype as a professional pastry chef? And I'm wondering... Is there a moment in your career where you've, you've tried to disrupt the patriarchy that oftentimes exists in kitchens? Well, you know, I a have... A loaded question. <laughs> so loaded. Um, <laughs> you know, I've worked for, when I was a Sue and um, when I was a pastry cook, I worked for both female and male pastry chefs. And I felt like the knowledge that I gained from both genders was like, equally crucial in my development Mm -hmm. um, and to where I am today. As far as like things that I do to, you know, buck the norm, I am more than happy to have like both genders or whatever anyone identifies as on my team. If you want to learn, I want to teach you. And totally, you know, as far as like regular kitchen banter, I think everyone in the kitchen knows not to say things like that around me because it won't fly. Will not fly in your kitchen. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, and I and I'm wondering too, just because of the context of your studies, how has that influenced you as a leader? I think it. Um, I think when I was younger, I would get like especially fresh out of college when I first started baking uh professionally full-time it was it was something that would generally you know get me really really worked up and I think as I've gotten older and I've worked in more kitchens the norm is changing Mm -hmm. things that were acceptable quotations acceptable to say you know 10 years ago that's not the case these days and I'm not saying that it doesn't still happen in Mm -hmm. certain certain restaurants it certainly doesn't happen in ours you know rice street tavern in the kitchen and the culture that we propagate is all across the board inclusive Mm -hmm. and accepting of everyone yeah that's beautiful and and i wonder we're at this moment in time where there's this big shift between the old guard i'm saying this on like a macro level not even just in kitchens like the shift of the old guard versus literally everyone else millennial and younger who's coming up through the rankings and I myself feel like again with the context of entrepreneurship here that as business leaders we have the opportunity to define our mission and core values and what we stand for 
through our business practices. And it's really, really apparent to me these days how much um, we're not standing for the old guard <laughs> patriarchy anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I would completely agree. The, the norms that were in our industry aren't, they're, the door's right there and they're walking out. And, you know, I like, I want to think that, you know, the kitchens that I've worked in have helped mold me to be aware of, uh, of the norms and everything that's changing. And I want to do everything in my power as a mentor to help usher in this new wave of pastry cooks and pastry chefs or, you know, savory cooks that if you want to do it and if you want to put the work in and you want to go far in this industry, you can. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to tell you otherwise. Yeah. I'm wondering from your academic background, what do you think about my statement of this viral online presence of women baking? Because I just feel like it's a fine line between feminism or like the rise of I'm having it all lean in and again like propagating the same like 1950s tropes well I think I would completely agree with what you're saying but it's funny because on a professional a professional level most pastry chefs I would say there's there's still a megaton there's like this huge wave of male pastry chefs still, hmm. like the the Moff in France, um, which is a competition every held every four years. Uh, only men can compete. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? It's just how it's always been. The old guard. So we got it. Crushing the patriarchy one <laughs> slice of cake at a time. We got to change that. We are going to take a quick break and be right back with Sarah and talk about some of these entrepreneurship tips and tricks that she's learned along the way. We'll be right back. service radio you're listening to the tidbit and we're back with sarah malfris the pastry chef at rye street tavern by andrew Camerlini in baltimore maryland as we were just talking about um a lot of budding entrepreneurs take their love of baking maybe even seeing it as a mindfulness practice in some ways and then want to quit their jobs and just bake for a living i see this all of the time all of the time. But when you take something that you've used as a relaxation method and then try to make it money off of it, things fundamentally change. So I'm wondering, Sarah, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are looking to turn their passion into their profession? Well, there, there's such a difference between baking one thing in your kitchen and then working in a full-service restaurant that there's there's nothing to compare the two um so i guess my suggestions to someone who really wants to break into the food and beverage scene is to go around 
do some research, stage at, you know, multiple places, you know, for more than just one service or one day to really get a feel of what it's like. I mean, not only the like aspect of like baking for yourself or baking for your friends, you're having to bake for consumers and guests and, you know, as opposed to standing on your feet for like a couple hours, like leisurely in your kitchen, you know, you're standing on your feet for 10 to 12 hours a day, like in one like little four by four spot and, you know, forgetting to drink water. Like, uh, <laughs> can you define what staging is for our listeners? So staging is where you go to a restaurant or a bakery and you work a shift for free. Mm-hmm. Almost uh, like an apprentice. Yes, almost like an apprentice. Just to like get a feel for it because every restaurant and every bakery is different. Mm-hmm. So what may work for you won't work for someone else. And I think it's really getting a feel for a place. You know, for me, everywhere I've worked, I've had to have like, it's almost like you have a love affair with it at first. And then like you have to want to be there. Right. I mean, it is for free after all and people wear their stage experiences like badges of honor I've recognized based on where you've staged means a certain thing about your professional journey which is very interesting and what I've witnessed from again entrepreneurs who have been baking in their home and then want to turn it into a full profession there's this mental shift of you are not just the creative expression put into that baked good anymore. You have clients who are demanding certain colors, flavors, look, feel of you. So that's really interesting because I don't think a lot of people recognize that it's not just your creative input anymore. You have to do what the end consumer wants. Well, yeah. And even, even in the beginning, like the creative process, like the beginning part of my career, I probably wasn't allowed to be creative for the five, first five years mm. you know because, talk about that well because when you're a pastry cook you're you're a worker bee and those years where you're learning you know mother recipes and like why this works this way or doesn't those are crucial mm. so I mean I remember when I was young you know early 20s like I just wanted to be creative I just wanted to like write the menu and like do all the things and it took me a really long time because I'm a very like strong-willed type a individual to really like take a couple steps back because you have to learn how to walk before you can run you have to build those foundations exactly and I also think another aspect especially in baking those entrepreneurs who are interested in making it your career baking oftentimes and tell me if this is not your experience but Baking requires very early mornings <laughs> often, especially if you're trying to put out like a pastry buffet before the rest of your guests, or maybe you have a coffee shop. Most people want their coffee at 7 a.m. or earlier. So if you are someone who is not a morning person, perhaps don't go into baking. Well, I mean, that's the thing I love about baking is it's such a wide range of things that you can do. That's true. You know, there's pastry work where you're just working in a bakery. If you love boulangerie and you want to make bread, bread hours are, you know, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. 5 a.m. <laughs> so, like, if you're a night owl and that's what you want to do, then you can do that. For me, you know, I, I run a restaurant pastry department. So my day usually starts, you know, around eight. It's when I wake up, 
I first thing I do, look at my emails. I look at our calendar, see what we have going on. By the time I'm in the restaurant, it's 9, 9.30. And I'm usually there till about 8 or 9 at night. Wow. Um, and those, for me, like it, it took me a long time to be okay with only working 10 hours. Mm. You had to cut yourself back. Yes. So, and that's something that um, I've really, you know, you talked about self-care mm-hmm. earlier, and that's something the last year that I've really tried to do for myself and that I push my cooks to do as well. And my sous chef, like, you need time off. You need time away, and that's important. Yeah, and if, you, if baking is not your self-care routine, what are you turned to? I mean, for me, I... Uh, yeah. I don't bake at home as much as I would like to, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I read a lot. I listen, I am an avid record collector. I listen to records. Oh, I love this. Um, you know, like I mentioned my like crystals and like all that <laughs> like witchy mumbo jumbo. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm even when I'm off, I'm constantly, you know, reading books or looking at blogs or, you know, picking up just magazines at the grocery store to see what's up and coming and like what other professionals and non-professionals are doing and like how can I incorporate all these new things into my work. Yeah, there's this term called um, that we are productive creatives. Yes. And that we are constantly put into this rigmarole of, of constant output of productivity. But your profession requires you to be creative. Um, Baltimore Art recently published a piece about you and your work titled Of Pastry and Perfectionism. Author Marissa Dobson goes on to open the article saying... Repeated failure is a part of any endeavor, any achievement, and when it's an artistic goal, whether that's writing or painting or pastry, repeated failure can be an an especially difficult passage because of feelings of self-worth and self-expression that are bound up in creating that a piece that reflects your identity. I mean, I could not agree more. Um, so in continuation with what we're talking about, I'm wondering, can you reflect to us what are some of the ways that you set boundaries and how do you if possible sort of compartmentalize your artistic expression your creative output from that capitalism productivity grind well I mean um for me I kind of have a rule with myself if I'm writing a new menu or working on a new dish if I try something twice and it doesn't work out I'll set it aside. I won't keep working on it. Um, I'll like, you know, file it back for uh, take a look at later, or I'll show it to my sous chef, Anna, be like, what do you think about this? How can we change this? How can we make it better? And I really lean on her to give me a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, That's beautiful because there's um, a wonderful book called Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. And one of the principles she discusses is around being a leader that's not the knower of all things because that's the easiest way for you to uh, be stagnant, right? You have this co-collaborative, this co-creative process and you're not there like, I'm the boss and I know it all. I love that. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to brag on her for a minute because I can't, I can't do anything uh, without mentioning her. Uh, so my Sue, Anna, 
has been with me for four years. She did her externship with me uh, when she was at the CIA. She came back, and this is our uh, third restaurant together. And I could not do what I do without her. Um, you know, she's she's been a rock for me, especially you know when we have moved restaurants and like my managerial status has changed and like I have more. Um, paperwork I have to do. I know she's there uh, to kind of hold down the fort while I'm doing everything else. And with her like cultural background and everything, um, having her perspective of what we should do is has been, you know, quintessential. Mm-hmm. And almost by adding more voices to the conversation, it ends up setting boundaries for yourself because you're not taking all of that weight on your shoulders. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the creative process for me has been, it's, it's moved a lot uh, over the last couple of years. I find myself now relying more on things that I ate when I was younger and, you know, not really trying to do, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel mm. in my dishes. I'm just trying to, you know, I want to trigger some sort of memory, but kind of in like a different way. In your own way. Yes. Oh. Beautiful. So if people want to learn more about you or Rye Street Tavern or just maybe even your mumbo jumbo witchy practices, <laughs> I don't know. I'm intrigued. How could people find out about you? Uh, so I have Instagram. It's at S-E-M-A-L-P-H-R-U-S. And uh, the restaurant is at Rye Street Tavern. Amazing. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, do you create any pastries with the rye? Uh, we've done some breads before Ooh. and we've put it into a pie crust. So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to nosh on that. <laughs> um, listener, if you don't already know, this show is based on a biweekly newsletter that we send out at Curate called The Tidbit. And in it, we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to and learning five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. Head over to Curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E.co to sign up. And we'd love if more budding entrepreneurs and listeners like you could find out about the tidbit. Our mission at Curate includes the sharing of education and access to resources. And the best way to reach more folks like you, in fact, is to leave a review in iTunes. So I would be really appreciative if you could head over to your app and leave a little tidbit on there about what you've learned here on the show. And until next time, everyone, remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.